If you're a female leader in the corporate world, you have undoubtedly noticed that things are different for you than they seem to be for men. It's not your imagination or a conspiracy theory that your brain thought up as an excuse. There's social science that explains how we got here and how we can move forward into a new future. One of the experts on gender in the workplace is Mary Shapiro from Simmons University. And we are so lucky to have her here today to talk about her work. So I hope you love hearing from her as much as I do. I'm Jill Avey, a career success coach, and this is Sister Smart Leadership, the show that explores how women can rise from director to vice president and beyond by fully leaning into their feminine energy as their biggest advantage. Let's get you one step closer to the recognition and promotion you deserve. So uh, please welcome with me, um, this is Mary Shapiro, and she is a fellow at Simmons University Institute of Inclusive Leadership, and she has 30 years of experience in um, gender studies and really understanding both from a consulting background and from a teaching background of what the differences are for women in the workplace, as well as she's doing a lot of consulting these days on both with executives and teams and on an organizational basis. So she really covers the spectrum of DEI issues and is looking at in inclusivity across the board. But we get the pleasure of, of getting to hear from her today about women's issues. And is we're particularly going to talk about how how the gender roles relate to executive presence. So I'm pretty excited about this conversation. So with that, Mary, I would love to hear from you. Um, what are some things that come to mind off the top of your head when you think about executive presence and women together? Great. Well, thank you for asking me that question because that elicits a lot of emotion and energy uh, in what I think about that. Um, years ago, I was asked at Simmons to start teaching a course on executive presence. And I immediately bristled at the, at the request because it seemed like only women we dealt with a lot of executive women coming into our programs and a lot of women were getting dinged on their performance appraisals for not having executive presence. And I kept thinking, do men get dinged for executive presence? And the answer at least 20 some years ago was that no, they really didn't. So I kept thinking this has to have a gendered element to it. And so I kept thinking of what was the, what was executive presence code for, right? And so I really, kind of spent a lot of time taking a look at that. And I, I kind of deduced that it meant, well, for women, you're supposed to be more confident, but you can't be cocky. And you need to be more assertive, but you can't be shrill. And you need to be more commanding, but you can't be bossy. And so I thought this, the whole concept of executive presence really put women into this double bind of how do I exude presence, which has been conflated with so many masculine attributes. Mm -hmm. And yet we know that uh, organizations promote on confidence and presence, oftentimes over competence. So it really was a, it was a, a, a dilemma. So I had to take some time and really kind of wrap my arms around it. And how I started thinking about it is that Presence is really all about what do you want people to think about when they see you, listen to you, think about you. And it's your core, which is all your values, your morals, your ethics, your foundational piece. And then wrapped around that is your acumen, all your knowledge, your experience, all the skills that you've developed. And then wrapped around that 
is really all about what I call the externals. That's physically how you look, how you come across, the behavior, the tone of your voice, what your office looks like, what your background of your Zoom looks like. All that kind of stuff adds up to projecting, ideally, something that you want other people to think about when they think about you. So that's how I, I, I wrestled with my own demons about thinking about presence. So where did that lead you? <laughs> where? Me. Well, what was interesting is that you can read a lot of the research around executive presence. And what I came away with was a couple things that I felt like particularly relevant to women. One was this concept of what's called attribution theory, which is for you to enact leadership and be perceived as a leader, you have to not only think about what am I doing, but what's happening in the environment around me. Because women forever have been socialized to point inward when they fail. Oh, I screwed up. I wasn't really good. I knew I wasn't going to be competent. All that kind of stuff. Point outward when they succeed. So it's, oh, it was the team effort. I couldn't have done it without the full team. All that kind of Fine. Men, on the other hand, are socialized very differently. And they're socialized to point inward when they succeed. Oh, I'm the greatest. (laughs) And and point outwardly if they fail. You didn't give me enough time. You weren't clear on your directions. You didn't give me enough resources. It's always pointing externally. And again, when I talk about men and women, I don't certainly don't assume all men do it one way, all women do it another way, because there's a lot of variation in each of those groups. But it's just basically men and women as kind of social members, kind of what society says about them, right? So you're saying Uh, that that we're learning these things from a very young age and that that's in our culture more than it's just us as an individual of how we were raised in our particular family and situation. Absolutely. I mean, one study showed that by the age of four, little girls have learned to point inward for failure. And that's just horrifying. I have a four-year-old granddaughter and I'm like, no, I can't let this happen to her. But it's all through the media, it's through teachers, it's through family members, it's everything around us just tells us as individuals what we as people who present as women versus people who present as men, what they can and cannot do as individuals, but then also certainly as leaders. So yeah, we're absorbing all that all the time. I really see that play out in my coaching practice. And I mean, even in my own life, I've definitely felt that way too. And and you see the guys definitely not take on as much of that um, mm-hmm. intrinsic um, yeah. You know, yeah. The attribution. And I have a great comic for anyone who's still kind of going, I'm not really sure about that. And if you can think of the first frame, it's a woman. This is probably good post-COVID trying to put on jeans for the first time. And her, and she goes, oh, I got to go on a diet. And then you have the second frame and it's man trying to put on jeans probably for the first time since COVID. And he goes, something is wrong with these jeans. <laughs> and that, that actually happened in my house. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Definitely house said, oh, I need a new pair. It wasn't anything wrong with him, you know? Yeah, but what, by something's wrong, I got to go on a diet means I don't get to go shopping for the new jeans. So there's something wrong there. But but it really does reinforce the idea that we have to 
always think of leadership in two contexts. One is what does society tell us about leadership? And then what does your own organization tell you about leadership? Because some organizations may be very different than what society says in general, and then others mm -hmm. may replicate because we're all members of this society. We've, both men and women are getting all these messages that uh, many organizations replicate the concept of what's happening, who can be leaders, and most of the messaging is men can, and who can't be leaders, and most of the messaging is that women can't. We can dive in a little bit about what society says. Does that make yes. sense? First, I want to point yes. out, though, something that I think is really interesting is that we all get these messages. So even women propagate the, yes. some of these stereotypes and some of these biases. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes it's women. And I think we all probably have a woman in our career path that actually was more rigid in what she thought you could do or not as a woman and reinforce the social norms more severely than even her male colleagues. Yeah. yeah. So we can, we can, we have to really watch another woman and just go, Hey, she's leading and not impose what we have heard that society says what she can and cannot do. And yeah. sometimes we're our own worst critics. Right. I mean, for clarity's sake, Men have their own set of stuff, yes. and often women will find it distasteful when they see a man cry, even though we encourage them to have feelings That's and right. things like that. And so it definitely it goes both That's directions right. for That's sure. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So what are some of the other things that some yeah. of the other biases that come in? So what I wanted to kind of map out is some of the history and, and the research around how we've gotten to where today, even in this current year, messages from society still overwhelmingly conflate masculine traits with leadership. And, they, and that leaves women with feminine traits going, okay, how do I enact leadership as a result of that? So there's two factors that kind of have really significantly played in. One is who we have researched and we put out in history as leaders. And then two is who we see in leadership today. So historically, even though there's been always leaders, this, the actual research about leadership really didn't start beginning until about the early 1800s. And the scholars at that time kind of looked around and they saw who all was in leadership and it was all men. And they came up with a really snappy title for a theory called the great man theory of leadership. <laughs> and the idea was that what was these great men would really drive historical outcomes. And so they looked at what were the traits that were required to be a leader in the early 1800s. And not surprisingly, it included things like it was always good to have a good family name. So that was one. But the other was you had to be decisive and autocratic and aggressive and ambitious and all of these traits that enable these rulers in the 1800s to fight each other and to take more territory and to dominate everybody. And that's kind of the great man theory of, of leadership. So you fast forward through years and years and years, and some of those traits have stayed sticky in terms of how we still describe leaders, right? But the other thing that I just want to, before I get back to talking about some of the traits, is 
We don't even need to talk about the second factor of when you look out into today's society, who dominates in the leadership fields, right? Even though women have made a lot of progress, you still look at the Fortune 500, you still look at the members of Congress, you still look at even many of our leaders in civic organizations and nonprofits, and even in the leaders in academia, oftentimes are still men. So that just, even that is a subtle message that tells young girls moving into thinking about what they want to do to see that leadership isn't something that is really available to somebody that looks like me. So right. that the, the absence becomes a very strong message as well. Yeah, so. and I've noticed that even in heavily female roles like nursing or marketing, even when you get up to the top, then it turns to men in the leadership roles and it's still the same as everywhere else. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go to your kid's grade school and the principal is a man oftentimes yeah. and everyone else are women that are doing all the teaching and the heavy lifting of actually educating and taking care of our kids. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I did want to share a couple things around the traits, because as a listener to this, you should be thinking about the, what traits would you use to describe yourself and your leadership? And by thinking about that, as I talk about kind of how those traits have shifted or not shifted over time, you'll start getting a picture of how, no wonder I struggle with whether it's a certain group of people or like Jill, like you said, I might struggle with women if I have a lot of masculine traits or so it, it will give you an indication of how much in alignment or non-alignment you are with these general social messages that are coming to us. So if we start back in 1974, a scholar named Sandra Bem basically had a list of 60 some traits and she asked hundreds of people and then thousands of people. And since then, it's broadened out even more. Which traits are more desirable for men or women to enact? And what she found as leaders, as leaders. Yes. Yeah. And what she found is that women were expected to be affectionate, sympathetic, gentle, sensitive, supportive, and kind. And then it was more appropriate. It was more desirable. That was the language she used, the more desirable for men to enact traits like being competitive, daring, adventuresome, aggressive, dominant, right? And so- Two well, very from, different. Those are really different feelings yeah. about the culture that you would create if you were that type of leader. They're, they're quite striking. Very different. different. <laughs> yes, know? yes. And she had actually hypothesized why that difference. And she was saying that it was because at that time, it was only- 4% of middle managers were women. So this is 1974, yeah. less than 50 years ago, 4% of women were middle managers. And so she was hypothesizing that the reason why people conflated those particular traits with men or women was because of the roles that they were in. And so because men were more likely to be in a leader role inside an organization, those were attributes and traits that were necessary for them to be successful. And then the other traits, the caring, the compassionate, the empathetic, those types of traits 
were really needed for the majority of women that were home taking care of children, taking care of the home. Mm -hmm. Now, it's really important to note it at the time of her initial research that women of color were much more into the workforce and were much more frequently in breadwinning roles. Her initial research were on primarily white Americans. And yet even those women of color were not in those leadership positions in mm -hmm. the middle managers. So they're probably doing a lot of those more masculine traits in order to be able to be successful in the workplace, but it still wasn't seen as desirable for them to do that because that was crossing into what men were supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So she had hypothesized that as the mix of what men and women do in terms of the roles that they play, rather than being like these polar opposite traits, more and more traits would become what she called androgynous, meaning that they would be desirable for both men and women to execute. Mm -hmm. And so there wouldn't be a penalty that, oh, if a woman's doing com being, a competi being competitive, for example, it, it would be seen as not appropriate, right? So I wanted to find out whether or not 50 years, almost 50 years later, so in 2015, I did a study of about 600 women at a Simmons University conference and asked them essentially the same question that Sandra Ben did. It's, Here's a bunch of traits. What's more desirable for men and what's more desirable for women? And, and so we think know, that we would have come a very long way since yes. 1974, 50 years ago. I mean, leadership has changed a lot since then. Yep. And 50% of, of middle managers were now women. Now, at the time, 2015, still only like 3% were CEOs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's the next frontier, right? But you were so that, mostly talking to middle managers in this? Yes, I was talking to mostly middle managers and upper middle managers. But again, they were reflecting on the messaging that they heard, right? Yeah. They didn't necessarily believe that, for example, my findings found that, yes, they, men still need to be risk-taking and ambitious and, and assertive and aggressive. And women still needed to be cooperative and friendly and warm and kind and things like that. It wasn't necessarily that they believed that, but they just said, this is what society is telling me is more desirable. So yeah. what you just said is that <laughs> I know in 50 years, it really didn't change. No, no. The only only a couple traits moved to androgynous. And those traits included three masculine traits became more androgynous, meaning that women could do being decisive, disciplined, and rational. And then only one feminine trade moved to androgynous, and that was loyalty. So, yes. So there were several takeaways. One, I was really sad to see that in 50 years' time, there wasn't that much of a shift. And listeners can be thinking about kind of what are all the messaging and what's the source of that messaging, right? And you look mm -hmm. everywhere, and there's still this very competitive, assertive, super masculine, some people call it toxic masculine on one side, way at the one extreme, not that all men execute that. And then on the other side, women are still expected to be nice and passive and relationship focused and taking care of, I mean, I don't know about you, but I get overwhelmed over the number of advertisements about beauty products and things like mm -hmm. that. 
And that's still the domain primarily for women. I have a couple takeaways from from the the research that I did. One is that it definitely leadership, as you said, Joe, is still conflated with masculinity and it's primarily white masculinity. And white masculinity is not saying that all white men do it this way. It just says, in general, the culture that is dominated, the messaging is dominated by white men. But the concept of white masculinity says, all right, yes, if you're going to be a leader, you need to be competitive, assertive, aggressive, a risk taker, all those types of things. Mm -hmm. I'm taking a brief break from this episode to ask, do you feel stuck and unclear about what you need to do to get promoted from director to vice president and beyond? Take the next step and get the free Passport to Promotion private podcast where you'll get the seven-step method to use to get promoted. In each episode, you'll find a tangible concept with real-life examples from my clients on how they were able to use that strategy to reach their next level, plus an action step you can take right now to accelerate your path to promotion. You can find the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the episode. The other message is that it's not, the message isn't, okay, if I'm a woman and I want to be a leader, I should take up more masculine behaviors and I should hide my own feminine behaviors because you can imagine how that turns out. Right. And we can all think of women, whether it's in our own organizations or in the public face that have taken up really significant masculine behaviors and they tend to not be successful. Yeah. And I think that's an important point because in, in my era, a lot of the women that, that I came up with, that's what we did to be successful Uh was we, I was in sporting goods and I could kind Uh of hang with the guys, but I was kind of a tomboy anyhow. And so that, that did sort of work for me, but, and I, and I even thought that I would bring that into my executive coaching. And then I realized as I started to do my research as a coach, I realized, no, there's a whole other way. And then yes. that doesn't that doesn't work because you're not bringing your authentic self. Right. And you're not bringing your actual talent. You're trying to put on a facade right. and then you don't build trust as well because they could tell that they're not getting the real you. Right. And as well, you're not performing as well as you could because it's not the real you either. That's right. That's right. And exactly to your story, because you were an athlete, they, there's all kinds of research that talks about that. Being a competitive athlete helps to prepare you for leadership. What I was going to say is you probably have some masculine traits that you're very comfortable with and who are authentically you. Yes. Yet you also may have what are traits that have been named as feminine traits that also are comfortable to you. And that's exactly where I try to get individuals to get to is to look at, and this is including with working with men, it's the goal should be to know what your strengths are and to tap into the full portfolio of potential strengths, even those that have been kind of earmarked as masculine and earmarked as feminine. It's that you will be more successful as a leader the more you go, all right, given a particular situation, I need a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that's going to allow me to be successful. And that's exactly what a subsequent study was. I was so intrigued when COVID-19 hit, and the media immediately started talking about how, oh, look at these countries 
where there are female leaders, the countries are doing so much better in terms of avoiding COVID deaths and minimizing hospitalizations and all that kind of stuff. And as much as I was ready to go, yay, go women leaders, there was a part of me that also went, well, because they were a woman that enabled them to be successful or was it something else? And what I found, even though I'm still always ready to root for women leaders, I, I found that what was happening with like a Jacinda Ahern in New Zealand or an Angela Merkel in Germany is that they were doing very task masculine focused behaviors, being really aggressive, uh, shutting borders, putting all kinds of restrictions on things. That's very masculine. Take action, take care of the, the task. But they were also enacting many feminine characteristics of talking to their populations and talking in a way that was encouraging and we're going to get through this and mm -hmm. we're all in this together. So they took care of both getting the job done, but then also taking care of the people yeah. that were getting so severely impacted by this terrible disease. So, so it was really that them using both of those. That's really um, great to hear that perspective. I wondered, yeah. I was watching that really carefully myself and I was wondering mm -hmm. what the real, the, what the outcome was, because I was, it, you know, it changed over time as well. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We also did a study in the United States to see what was happening here. And what was interesting is that gender, again, didn't play out where, oh, states that were led by female governors did better. That wasn't the case. It was states where the governor executed both on the task, but then also took, a care, took care of the social emotional needs of the people, which is oftentimes seen as the domain of women. They were the ones that did the best. So but it could have been that, men doing that. Same and it could have been men too. Mm -hmm. right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 So the other place where we get messaging is our organizations. And it's really important to recognize that inside our organization, there's a culture with rules of what does leadership look like? Who can enact it? Who gets rewarded for enacting it? Who doesn't get rewarded for enacting it? And it's really important to recognize that no one started an organization with the explicit intention to disadvantage a certain percentage of the workforce, right? So no, it wasn't a bunch of guys sitting around going, all right, let's set up norms of how do we reward behavior here in a way that's going to not let women lead or contribute. That intentionality was never there. And yet- Even if it might feel like it sometimes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You might feel like, oh yeah, there's some blotting against me. But it really is more likely that the organization just started with people that may have been from one homogenous identity group like mm -hmm. men. And no one sat and said, okay, how do we want to run meetings? How do we want to do all these other types of things? But nevertheless, norms developed that worked for them, that made mm -hmm. sense for them. Yeah. And if you look at our largest organizations that all were kind of building in the 50s and the 60s, it was run by lots of men and oftentimes very much men that were coming back from whether it was Korea War mm -hmm. or, or Vietnam. And they brought that kind of military command and control top down. People at the top make the decisions and push them down. And that continues in many organizations to this day. And the challenge then is how do you, if you don't look like 
the people at the top of the organization, how do you wind up being able to lead when the organization is saying, yes, leadership is very masculine focused, it's decisive, it's aggressive, all those types of things. And in your wheelhouse, you may have a lot of feminine behaviors that really add value to the organization, but though it's invisible or it's misinterpreted and it's not seen as leadership. So that is always the challenge that we as women inside organizations face. Yeah, exactly. And so how can we suss out if we have potential to be able to move up in our organization? What are yeah. the cues that would tell us wh which type we're in? Yeah, this is why I started out with asking listeners to think about how they attribute their successes and their failures is before you say, okay, I'm not successful because I'm incapable, is to, to exactly as you're saying, Jill, pay attention to what goes on inside your organization. And one is pay attention to what happens in your performance appraisals. One organization that was trying to get, couldn't figure out why they had 50% women at the entry level, but then as they went up, there became fewer and fewer women. And one of the one of the words that they found that was only on women's performance appraisals was the word abrasive. <laughs> and so it's starting to pay attention to the words. This is why the executive presence piece was such a thorn in my side, because that was always the, the all right, well, she's abrasive, so she needs some executive training, right? Mm -hmm. Executive presence training, right? As opposed to, well, what is she doing that's abrasive? And that same behavior, how would it look like if a man did that behavior? And oftentimes it was the, she was persistent. She kept bringing up her idea because she knew her idea was really good or, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. Well, for somebody else in a different body, that might've been seen as leadership and somebody with a strong vision and commitment and passion. Right. And then, so paying attention to what constructive criticism that you're getting in your performance appraisal is one. The other is, I mean, the most obvious is to look at who your leaders at the top are. And as much as some people want to go, oh, it doesn't really matter that that representation issue. If you can't see yourself at the top of an organization, then most likely that means that people who act like you do don't get promoted upwards. So that's another piece of it. And then the other is just kind of looking at what are some of the expectations and these are the norms for how do we work together inside an organization. So for example, if at a meeting, is it okay? Who gets heard? How does airtime get allocated? Is it a fight for airtime? Do people just talk over each other because whoever is the loudest voice win? Those are all attributes that are, again, conflated with masculine, loud and direct. And that oftentimes people as a woman wouldn't even be able to follow those rules because she would be seen as pushy or bitchy yeah. or something like that. Yeah. One really good example also, and then I can stop talking about organizations, is what is the pace and the timing of work? Because originally when it was mostly men in professional work, work could be 24 seven. 
even though they didn't have emails back in the day and all that kind of stuff. But there was that you were available to come into the office and men would go into the office seven days a week. And it was that coming into the office was proof of your commitment. And it worked because you had probably a stay-at-home wife who was taking care of the rest of your your life. Those same expectations, if they're still happening in your organization, it doesn't work when you've got either two working parents or you've got as a single mother and you can't be available 24-7. So if those expectations are still happening, that really is an indication that this is a very masculine environment that is asking you to put work above everything else because work is the domain of men and everything else is the domain of women. And we're not valuing that. I think that's really a big one these days Mm -hmm. because we do have so many of those two kinds of households with single women and and two working parents where getting all the other stuff done, whether it's childcare or elder care or whatever else is going on. I swear sometimes pet care can be enough too. And but just aren't we aren't available and and then to set boundaries now we're seen as not loyal and we don't care about Mm -hmm. our careers and things like that. And not having that trade off be respected for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Some organizations are actually very intentionally trying to change that. So one organization that worked with Simmons was a big pharmaceutical company. And because they were global, they had the expectation that for you to get to the executive vice president level, you needed two years of expat work somewhere in the world. Mm. And that worked when you had primarily men and they had what's always called the trailing spouse, which was a woman who might not have a career or had a very secondary career and could move the household, take care of the children, get the dog out of quarantine that had to be at quarantine for whatever, and took care of the rest of the life of of the man. So he could, as an executive, get that expat experience. As soon as this pharmaceutical is recognizing we can't get women to do these expat positions, and that was impeding their ability to move up in an organization, women were saying, my husband isn't going to let go of his career to go for me to go work in France for for two years, or I'm a single parent and who's going to take care and get my kids integrated Integrated into this new school system and everything. And so what this organization did to their credit was figuring out, all right, we still want this international experience, but we're going to put it into these little bite-sized things. So people would go, still a burden, still a challenge, but but executives would go for three weeks somewhere and mm. then come back for a month or so, go back for three weeks, come back and didn't do a full two years work, but got a good sense of these different world cultures mm-hmm. that the organization had to work in. So creativity on the org's part in order to be able to take out what was never seen as an intentional challenge for women. Let's, let's put this barricade up. But nevertheless, it served as as a barricade. For yeah. Women. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Now you have a framework of yes. how to how to navigate some of this. Yes. Would you so share that with me? A big part of we can wait for organizations to really systematically try to figure out what's impeding women's progress inside their organizations. And many organizations legitimately want this to figure this out. 
But uh, what I coach women um, to do, or anyone who is different than the majority culture inside an organization, is to recognize that by you trying to execute leadership, one is that you're challenging what I consider a very narrow definition of leadership. It's all these things over here that we've been saying, right? And what we're trying to do is change one-on-one a person's idea around leadership, or it might be one on a department or a team or ultimately an organization, but to expand who can do leadership and what leadership can look like. So I counsel the idea around if I'm going to lead, I want to lead from my strengths. I want to figure out out of this whole portfolio of potential ways of leading, which ones are I'm going to take on in this moment for this situation so that I can be successful. So the organization can be successful, the team successful, whatever. Sometimes it might be a masculine behavior. Sometimes it might be a feminine behavior. But either way, it's important for us to make sure that what we do is that we're essentially putting what I call a verbal frame on our actions. And it's essentially explaining what you're doing. And by doing that explanation, you are broadening people's narrow definition of leadership that we've all evolved to as a result of all the socialization that we've gone through. So it's called name, explain, and claim. And basically naming is I'm going to tell people what I'm doing and then I'm going to explain why I'm doing it because oftentimes my strategic intent may be misinterpreted. For example, I might be trying to have people involved in a decision through a consensus decision-making process. And because masculine-wise, we're supposed to be decisive, me asking for input may be seen as I'm incapable of making the decision myself. So it could be I may be misinterpreted that I'm incapable of making the decision or, oh, I'm just asking people because I want people to feel good about the decision and feel like they've been included. As if those are necessarily bad things, but at any rate. So I'm going to explain the why am I doing something? And then that way, and then I'm going to name and claim what the intended um, beneficial outcome is that I'm, I'm seeking. So let me give you an example. So there's an upcoming contract and that needs to be finalized with the vendor. And it's going to be critical to your company or your team or your supply chain for five years, right? So you could, as a leader, make the decision all by yourself. But instead, you want different people from different parts of, that are from different functions or whatever, to come together and wrestle with this contract, come up with a agreed upon terms so that we can make sure that the contract meets all of our needs, doesn't have any unintended consequences. We're stuck with it for five years. So I might need to say something like, we're ready to finalize this contract that's worth $2 million and it lasts five years. You are all going to have to live with the terms of this contract for that time. So to make sure that we have the most airtight contract possible with no unintended consequences, no unhappiness that, oh my gosh, this isn't working for our group. I've invited you all here to pick apart every clause based on your own functions perspective. And then we're going to come to an agreement on what this contract looks like. 
So it seems like, oh my gosh, so much extra work. Why can't mm. I just invite people say, hey, we're mm. going to talk about the contract, come on in. In many cases, we can just do that because people already get who you are and they already see you as a leader. But this name, explain and claim framing can be really valuable when you're dealing with new people that don't know who you are, that don't know that you're a fabulous leader, and or for people that you feel like, oh, yeah, they, they think I'm too nice or I'm too squishy or I'm all the other weird words that oftentimes women's leadership gets attributed to. So yeah, so thinking about putting this verbal frame on top of doing good leadership, picking which trait you should enact in order to fill, to meet your, your goals, and then putting this verbal frame on it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I've seen this work with my clients as well. And I had one client who was working at this tech startup and she, she'd worked for several other huge companies and she kept getting told that she didn't lead right and she needed to lead like the guys did. And so she would end up quitting because it didn't work for her to try to do it like them, but it worked really well for her to do it her way. And she was on her third job when she started with me and she wanted this one to work because she really liked this company. And so mm -hmm. through my program, she was able to get the naming and explaining part down and, and claiming mm -hmm. that as well. She, she did this whole process without having those words for it. And mm -hmm. when she could start to understand herself, what she was doing and why she was doing it, then she could communicate that out. And it resulted in her getting promoted twice in one year. And all of a sudden, so wow. much more respect for how she was leading her team and why it was running so smoothly rather than that being maybe a fluke or who yes, knows what they were attributing right. it to before. That's you know? right. Yep. Yep. But that's a great example also of taking the risk to be authentic, but then helping other people to see how your authentic leadership is actually going to be successful in terms of reaching the outcomes that the organization wants, right? And it's not that you're criticizing because when she's being told you, you're not doing leadership right, it would have been great if she had asked, well, what does right look like? And is that something that as a woman I can do, even though that makes it for a really challenging conversation or an, an uncomfortable conversation? Or it could be, I'll try that and you can let me know how it was received. Mm -hmm. But it is you not criticizing others, but saying, I need to do it in a way that makes sense to me and it's authentic to me because, Jill, as you started off the segment, talking about how that's how we build trust, how other people come to trust us because they know who we are and we're leading from that, from the, from where we are. Absolutely. I love that. Oh, I could keep talking for another <laughs> few hours with you, but I know that we have to let you go. And so thank you so much for discussing this with us and, and to Bring your name, explain and claim framework as well. And so much background and history. I love, I love going back to the 1800s and to see how much of our culture is huh. still actually operating on these things that have come from this. There's through lines from hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And culture's yeah. deep and it doesn't change easily. And, and we're all working to, to do that. So thank you so much for all the work that you do with Simmons. And it's been a pleasure to have you here Great. with us. Thank you. It was it's always great to talk about this because I'm so, so I just feel like it's, it, we're, we're going to change leadership one person at a time, right? Yeah. We're going to expand leadership. That's, yeah.
Great. Yeah, Thank you, Jill. Absolutely. Thank you. Great. So if you want to improve your executive presence, let me know in the comments if you can relate to any of these issues that Mary and I have been talking about. Have you ever been told or heard of another woman being told that you are too abrasive? How do you balance your feminine and masculine leadership traits? And what can you name, explain, and claim in your company? Let us know in the comments if you're joining us on YouTube. If you'd like to learn more about how to increase your executive presence, download our Executive Presence Guide for Women Leaders, 10 Strategies for Commanding the Room. Each one is something that you can implement today. And the link is below in the show notes. As well, if you want to dive deeper into women's leadership and how to move up in your career, subscribe either on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm on a mission to help more women get into leadership and stay there. And if that's aligned with you, I'd love to have you be part of this community and tune into more episodes on Sister Smart Leadership that will support you in becoming the leader you want to be. If you're ready to fully lean into your feminine leadership and get promoted from director to vice president and beyond, hit that subscribe button so you'll get all the episodes to come. And check out the recommended video here to see how women are rising up without playing by the old rules that built these male-dominated industries and systems. If you're seeing just how differently women lead and how by doing so, women leaders can gain influence, restore balance, and earn the recognition and promotions they deserve, I would love it if you left a rating and review. I read each one and these reviews make it possible for me to reach more women leaders like you so they can rise up as far as they'd like without getting stuck.